I just got a new set of tires for my Volkswagen Jetta. I got an oil change and I'm packing up my gear for the next joy trip. I'll be heading east to report for the first time from the New River Rendezvous in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The three-day event is another one of those terrific gatherings of our tribe, we who find adventure in play at climbing, mountain biking, kayaking, and trail running. Maybe one day I'll even try base jumping. In the heart of the New River Gorge, there'll be parties, clinics, a climbing comp, slideshows. There's even going to be a contest to see who can wear the most obnoxious, sexy, or outrageous lycra tights. Should be a great time. One, two, three, four. But you know, the thing I love most about a trip like this is having the opportunity to connect with old friends, folks I haven't seen for a while. Festivals like the New River Rendezvous bring together some amazing people, climbers mainly, men and women who travel the world to do daring things most of us only dream about. Someone I look forward to seeing over the weekend is Lynn Hill. In a career that spans more than 30 years, her contributions to the sport of climbing have been both groundbreaking and inspirational. One of the first female climbers to reach a position of prominence, Lynn first made a name for herself in 1979. She was the first woman to establish a 513 route called Ofer Broke in Ofer, Colorado. She's perhaps best known for being the first person, man or woman, to free climb the nose route on El Capitan in 1993 with legendary climber John Long. In 1994, she did it again with her partner, Brooke Sandahl. Then she was the first person to make the climb in a 24-hour period. I had the opportunity to speak to Lynn back in 2007 at another event in Bend, Oregon during the annual meeting of the American Alpine Club. We were here at Smith Rocks and I more than once watch young girls look at you and say, oh my god, that's Lynn Hill. How does it feel to have inspired so many women, particularly young women, not only in climbing but in life in general? You're a genuine role model to a lot of people. Well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and First of all, yeah, it's fantastic to be able to do that. But there's the personal side, the, the one-on-one that makes me feel a little bit modest or, I don't know, slightly embarrassed even at times. It kind of makes me want to shrink away and say, oh my God. But on the other hand, it's very satisfying to know that it did have a positive impact on people because it's really important to follow your dreams and you know, be able to imagine things and follow through and do it. That was kind of one of the main messages. And it's not about your body size. It's not about a lot of that stuff that people get hung up on. It's about opening your mind and seeing possibilities and and rising to the level of the challenge, whatever that may be. This interview was originally recorded and produced in 2007 for the outdoor industry online trade magazine, Specialty News, also known as Snooze. In anticipation of the New River Rendezvous, we're bringing you this joy trip flashback, a conversation with climber Lynn Hill. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project.
Bruce, I'm interested in having you tell me your story of how you got into climbing. Well, I started in Southern California with my older sister. and Well, actually, I have two sisters and four brothers. So one of my brothers already climbed with my sister's boyfriend and my sister. And this particular day, we all went out there, my two sisters, my brother, the boyfriend, and my sister was in charge of teaching the girls to climb because the boys had their climbs to do. So she showed us how to tie the Swiss seat. It's a one-inch webbing that you put together and make your own harness and how to tie a figure eight knot. And I had these clunky old RD shoes that were not very good for a smooth granite slab. I was out in Southern California at a place called Big Rock. And I was in love with the whole experience of rock and beauty and hiking and just being outside and I had experience on camping trips with my family and and later just before that experience I went backpacking and so I had a, an appreciation for nature and I was a gymnast as well and that's why they were saying hey you'll be really good at this and very encouraging to me and it turned out to be true and before long they were saying ah we're having trouble on this hey Lenny you want to go up there and do it and I'd say, sure, I'll give it a try. And I didn't have a lot of hang-ups and just very open-minded. And I had a, a nimble, flexible body and pretty good core strength. So I did pretty well. And I understand at that point forward, you started becoming more proficient and ultimately found yourself in Yosemite Valley. At what point did you start doing big wall climbing? Pretty early on in, in just the whole spectrum of things, especially since I started in 1975, there wasn't much information about climbing, period. I did know that people had climbed El Cap when I went there on a family camping trip. I was 13 and, and my sister had already started climbing with her boyfriend and my brother. So I knew that it was possible, but when you walk or when you drive around the corner that Wawona Tunnel there and you see El Cap and the whole valley, it's just awesome. And I'm not easily impressed by that sort of thing, but it was an emotional experience. And not because I knew I was going to become a climber or anything, but just amazing beauty. But looking at the wall, I just couldn't see how anyone would climb it. Then I started climbing at the age of 14, that experience out in Big Rock. And, and then my, my weekends were consumed with either going to Joshua Tree or Idlewild, Talk Eats and Suicide. And it wasn't like we went every weekend, but my sister's boyfriend was really into it and he would go almost every weekend but he didn't always want a tag along because I was five years younger than them and yeah it was a responsibility but I begged to go and tried to you know arrange it for myself and as soon as I turned 16 I bought my own car and I tagged along with my sister that same year to go to Yosemite and I had no idea what was going to happen. I just wanted to go climbing. It wasn't like I had my eye on a big wall at that time. But I ended up meeting my first boyfriend, who was just a year older than me. He was 17, I was 16. And uh, so we were kind of like the youngest kids around and really into climbing. And we uh, got together at that point. And, uh, the following year, we did Half Dome together. I was 17. Through the course of your climbing, it sounds like you also got a, a, even more proficient, ultimately, to, to be the first person to free the nose. Tell me about the process of that. I mean, how did you find yourself in a position where you could do something in climbing that no one had done before? I had been climbing for 20 years at that point, 
I had done a lot of different kinds of climbing across the country. I'd spent time in Europe and I, I felt like I had the right amount of experience and vision to do it. Vision, you know, I didn't know until I got there to see, but I, I felt like I had the open mind to go up there and see if it was possible. And if you really want to do something and you have all of that experience and discipline to follow through with your goals, which has always been, you know, part of my whole character. I, I'm really determined and I work hard at what I do and and I was diligent about it. But I didn't know when I went to the valley in 1993 that it was going to work out. It was just a goal and it worked out. So tell me a little bit about it. I mean, what what was the plan? How, how did you get from the, the, from the bottom to the top on that day? Well, first of all, I have to say that John Long was an inspiration in, in just having the idea to try it. I mean, Yosemite's always been the mecca or whatever you want to say about climbing, and especially in this country and across the world. And I'd gone through the rite of passage, and, you know, after Half Dome, I did the nose in 1979. And <clears throat> I was just happy to get to the top of it because it's, it's a big effort to get up there with all your food and water and all the logistics and route finding. And, and even though the valley's in eyesight right down below you, it's a long way for somebody to pick you off the wall if you have a problem. So um, John Long was a, a really important motivator for me when I was 18. And years later, I came back through LA and saw him and he said, Lenny, you ought to try to free climb the nodes. And it hadn't really occurred to me. It was something that would be so audacious for somebody like John Long to just say, yes, I'm going to go do the first free ascent of the nose. And, but he realized that I could probably do it. And his idea was that the great roof was so thin that I might actually have an advantage, which is partly true, but uh, I kind of laugh at the idea that you have to have small fingers to do it. It's kind of the reverse discrimination um, that I, I don't really believe in. I think sometimes moves are harder for me, sometimes they're a little bit easier, whatever. It, and that's not even the point. The point is, adapt yourself with whatever you have to the challenge. Rise to the occasion, rise to the challenge. So, starting from that point, um, in 1992, I went up El Cap with Hans Floring. Because he'd always said, ah, come on, let's do a speed ascent, let's do it in a day, and he's Mr. Speed. So I said, okay. But the idea for me was to check it out. Okay, so the speed ascent is interesting. Uh, I was living in Europe at the time, so this was a pass through the States. I did a little bit of filming in Colorado, and actually we got a little bit of footage of that too. Um, and I have to say that at that point, I, I didn't really get a chance to look at the route. We were going really fast. And... Uh, we did it in just over eight hours, so you don't really have time to study things like the Great Roof, which you really have to look pretty hard to see the holds. So um, I looked at it enough to say, well, this is worth coming back to check out, because 90% of the route is, is really straightforward. It's just those key sections. Um, actually, there's probably four sections that were really quite difficult to understand. The Jardine Traverse being one of the first ones. Actually low down on the slabs there's some tricky balancey stuff. And uh, the Great Roof of course. The glowering spot and the changing corners. And then the very last pitch is not so easy when you're tired. Um, almost 3,000 feet of climbing and it's 12C steep overhanging. 
so the great thing about the root is that it has all the different forms of climbing. It's got slab climbing in the beginning, gets more vertical, there's crack climbing, there's stemming, there's like this changing corners required a techniques that I'd never seen anywhere, kind of, I had to invent some concept, well, using basic concepts, I had to put together a series of moves that were not very straightforward at all. Anytime you're the first at something, you have to see the possibilities and, and really kind of invent stuff, because you don't have a precedent. And so that was, I think, probably the hardest aspect of it psychologically. And then to actually put it together is also hard because you're way up off the ground, you've, you're tired when you get there, and it's very touch-and-go kind of climbing. And if you start making mistakes, then it gets really difficult psychologically. So even if I knew that I could physically do all the moves, putting it together in the whole performance was not a given. So what was the crux? What was the, the moment during the course of the climb that was most difficult? Well, I'd say that the changing corners pitch is the hardest, and... Tommy Caldwell and Beth Rodden have confirmed that pitch at 514A, and I'm not going to argue it. It was really hard. I don't know <laughs> how to put a number on something that's so out of the realm. And I kept having all these challenges that I couldn't get distracted from my goal because it was too important. And I said, all right, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, everybody's bailing out except for my partner. Um, not everybody, but a lot of people that were key. And my attitude was, I'm going to find a solution. I'm going to find a solution. Just even finding a way to do the route was the same attitude. So I just wanted to carry that through as far as I could, taking all of my experience as a traditional climber, uh, sport climbing, even that pressure that you are faced with in competition. And, uh, and then there was an element of fate. I felt like this was my role, this is something that would make a statement in the world of climbing, in the world in general, if anyone cared to look at it, and say, okay, here's a sport that's male-dominated, and not many women had done first ascents in Yosemite, certainly not of that caliber, and I felt that it was the right time, and I was the right person, the right place to do it. And so that actually was a really powerful motivating factor. Lynn Hill is still a dynamic and inspiring force in the climbing community, and she'll be among the many, many athletes attending the 2010 New River Rendezvous in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Find out more online at newriverrendezvous.com. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by Jake Shimobukura. The Joy Chair Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsors, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, REI, in Patagonia. Special social media coverage of the New River Rendezvous comes courtesy of Osprey, Prana, Trango, Sterling Ropes, Evolve, Chaco, the New River Alliance of Climbers, and Waterstone Outdoors. All these great companies support our mission of an active lifestyle through community involvement. Support us by supporting them. Find links to their websites on our website at joychirpproject.com. Thanks for listening. But we want to hear from you. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word by posting a link to it on your Facebook page or send out a tweet to your followers on Twitter. Post your comments to the Joy Trip Project blog or send us an email at info at joytripproject.com. Share your stories. Share your passion for outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving, and practices of sustainable living. And you just might inspire our next Joy Trip together. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, take care. Take care.